so thankful that you're here. I pray that you already have had a blessed weekend and a great opportunity to gather with friends and family. And it's not over yet, I hope, for most of you. And you'll still be able to enjoy this afternoon and tomorrow. I want to encourage you, if you've not already done so, to find in your Bible 1 Peter chapter 3. And the Paul's read for us the first 12 verses. And we are uh, going to be studying this passage. We've been studying in June and July this little book of 1 Peter. And we have discovered so clearly that it is a book for people who feel like their lives are out of control. And where is God when, when all of these difficult things are happening to me? And we titled the series, God's Got This. Because that's the overwhelming message that comes through 1 Peter is that God is in control. Today we're calling this message the transforming power of a tender heart. The transforming power of a tender heart. We were talking to staff the other day in our meeting about Memorial Day, 4th of July, and Veterans Day, and sometimes we get these things confused as what they represent. And uh, I won't go over with you what we kind of concluded, but 4th of July falls in the Cinco de Mayo category. Uh, it's that time where we celebrate the Declaration of Independence, and, uh, and, and we recognize veterans, we recognize all kinds of things related to our country on the 4th of July, but in particular, we, we recognize that moment when a group of leaders from 13 small colonies got together and signed a declaration that said what was happening and had been happening for years was not right, and they defined independence uh, the way that they did, so spectacularly. But what if it had not worked? What if instead of winning the revolution, we had lost? What if instead of discovering a new form of freedom that was new in the world at that time, a representative democracy, instead of, instead of experiencing that, we had experienced continued forms of oppression and tyranny, like so much of the world still does today, could we still have known freedom? Could we still have known liberty? Could we still have experienced joy that comes from another source, not from a government? And of course, Peter's answer and the answer of the early church is a resounding yes. It is possible to know freedom, liberty, and joy even when externally those things may not appear to exist. We know that Christians in the Roman Empire started out as a very small minority. And every decade in which the Christian church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, was spreading the gospel in the Roman Empire, every decade the church grew on average about 40%. Within the space of 250 years, there were more Christians in the Roman Empire than anybody else. And, and they overtook their oppressors through a simple message about Jesus Christ and the life that he offers. There are many theories, sociologists study the growth of the church, many theories as to why it was possible that the church could do that. I want you to see this morning how the apostle Peter explains and actually laid the foundation for what was going to happen over the next 200 years. We, had, we saw last week in chapter 2 that verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2 were laying out for you and me a principle, and the rest of chapter 2 in this part that we're going to look at today 
are all tied together by the principle stated in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Let's read it again. It'll be on the screen. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable. One of the alternative ways of translating the word honorable is good or beautiful. Having your conduct honorable or beautiful among the nations or Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And what we saw was that starting with Christians being citizens in a, in a Roman oppressive system, and that slaves, one-third of the population, 60 million people in the Roman Empire were slaves, that slaves under even harsh masters, and now we're going to see wives living with husbands even when they're not Christians, that in each of these situations there's a principle that's being worked out that the Christian needs to understand and embrace. And here's the principle. To live my life, especially when I hurt, in a way that influences others to turn to God. Well, now suddenly you begin to under, we begin to understand how a small group of Christians could influence a whole empire. Because even in the worst of times, their goal was to influence people with their lives. What happened is that the beautiful life, the person's in, inner relationship with Jesus Christ, so influenced the Christian, so affected who they were and how they responded to other people, that the people who didn't know Christ saw the Christian and was irresistibly drawn to that man or to that woman because of who Christ was inside of them. Something was going on. They could tell it was unusual. There was this overflow of love, overflow of joy, overflow of peace. And people saw that, and they were drawn to that. And in many cases, they wound up glorifying God, coming to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Conquered by the sheer force of a tender heart. Not by anger, not by force, not by weapons, but conquered by the sheer force of a tender heart. Now, most of this passage today is directed at wives, and I think that that's really, as we're going to get into the passage, I think it's really important for you and I to understand that although this is written to wives, this is part of a larger set of examples of a principle of how we influence people by the way that we live. And this is really clear in this particular passage of Scripture. Today, we're going to look at five ways that my life can influence others for Christ. If you have not already found it, if you're a guest with us inside the worship folder, you'll find a fill-in-the-blank listening guide. And it's a way of following along. It's a way of knowing when we're almost done. Uh, it's a way of gathering ideas and and knowing uh, some things that you can go back and reflect on later in the week and perhaps share with someone uh, that, that you want to, uh, to share with. Here's the first way 
that my life can influence another person for Christ. Number one, there's the power of loving every soul. The power of loving every soul, every person that I meet. In verse one, he starts off saying, wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. And we're going to go into that in more depth in just a moment. But the first thing I want you to see is that if I want to influence others with my life, I need to get my priorities right. That my relationship with you, if you're a total stranger especially, or someone that I've just met, or someone that I'm getting to know, that my relationship with you is governed by one single great question that should be in my mind. Do you know Christ, or do you need to know Christ? Are you a person who is in darkness spiritually, or are you someone that is in the light? Are you someone that is lost not finding your way, not knowing your way to God? Or are you someone who has been won, who has been gained, and who has fallen in love with Jesus Christ? The person that, every person that you and I meet, their spiritual condition should be the single most important question on our heart. And sometimes I think we take that for granted. And people know that we take it for granted. They know that we come to church and we're here on Sunday we listen to the sermon, we go home, and the rest of the week we, we may not be immoral people, we may not be bad people, we do our jobs, we work hard, we try to be good parents, we try to be good neighbors, whatever the case may be, we do those things, and in our conversations with people, we talk about all kinds of things. We talk about the weather, we talk about sports, we talk about politics, we talk about what's, what's going on in our lives, but we, do we talk about the most important thing in our lives because they may not go to church or they may they may know Christ they may not but I don't know their spiritual condition and if we never talk about spiritual things if I never find it in my heart to talk about something that God's teaching me or something that God is showing me in his word or hearing someone talk about a problem and saying, you know, one of the ways that I believe God has, has spoken to me about that issue is he's shown me this, and I've learned this, and I've grown in this way. And all the while, as we interact with a person over a day, a week, a month, years, we are sprinkling our relationship and our conversation with slight, small, grand, open uh, comments, statements about my satisfaction in Christ. And when that never happens, when I talked about everything under the sun except Jesus, well, it's not going to seem to them that he's very important to me. And if, I, if they, they hear about Christ, and maybe they actually come to know him, not through me, but maybe through someone else, they may think, why didn't that person ever tell me? Why didn't they talk to me? Is heaven real? Is hell real? Didn't they love me enough to talk about those things 
Weren't those things important? That they care about me, that they love me enough to talk about the most important thing. And people know. And you think, well, you know, I don't want to be obnoxious. I don't want to be that stereotype of a person who's just pushing, 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 trying to get somebody to go to church and be a notch in a gun, pack a pew and those kinds of things. I don't want to be that kind of a Christian. I don't want to be perceived that way. I want you to know that, that when somebody hears you talk about your relationship to God, yeah, it's possible you could be obnoxious. I don't know too many obnoxious Christians here. Maybe, maybe we can just be obnoxious, but I don't think our Christianity has anything to do with it. But when you share your faith with someone, you know the thing that comes through? With everything else you might say or not say, the seeds that you sprinkle, the comments that you make about your relationship to God, and maybe sometimes they may tease you about it. Well, you know, so-and-so, they don't, they don't do those kinds of activities, and they pick at you, and maybe they make fun of you a little bit. But you know, deep down inside, they know that you're a man, you're a woman that has something that they don't have. And when you try to talk to them about it, the message that they get is, that person cares about me enough to talk to me about my soul. Now, I may not believe what they're telling me. I may not buy into that Christian stuff, but they care enough about me to talk about my soul. And they know you love them. If the statistics are correct and the average person that comes to Christ has had at least seven significant conversations about Christ before they ever trust Him, if that's true, then imagine how many times you and I have this opportunity to contribute to someone's journey, to someone's insight about God by simply being who we are and sharing our faith. I've got to get my priorities right. This wife that's described here, she chooses to yield herself to her husband, which we're going to talk about submission in just a moment. I'll have everybody's attention then, I know. But, but her goal is not to be a perfect wife. Her goal is to win her husband. Her goal is that he might know God, that he might know Christ. And so if I want to influence others, there's a power to loving every person that you and I meet. There's a second way that my life can influence someone else for Christ, and that is this, the power of a transparent relationship with God. Again, in verses 1 and 2, wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. All right, let's talk about the S word, submission. You know, the longer I've been in ministry, the more that this word has been almost pushed into a place where we never even discuss it. Two other groups of people have already been told in this passage of Scripture, chapter 2, that they needed to be submissive, all Christians, to higher authority and government. Whatever kind of governmental structure or authority system you and I encounter, we are told in chapter 2 to play hard, best we can, to play by the rules, to be not just a good citizen, but someone who actually contributes and makes life better for the whole. 
And so we're called to this, to, be, to yield to those authorities. Now, if it's unjust, if it's sinful, if they're telling you not to worship God, if you can't, you can't do those things, yes, then we suffer. Why do we suffer? We suffer for righteousness' sake, for doing the right thing. But not because we're rebellious, not because we blow off authority, not because we are always critical of those in charge. But they look at us, they see the Christians coming, and they smile. Because they know when the Christians come, I may not agree with those people and what they believe, but they know when the Christians come, things are about to get really better. They're about to be helping me. They're about to bless me. They're about to make a difference. So two other groups have been told that. All of us as citizens, and then slaves to masters, we looked at that last week, but now it comes down to wives. In the most intimate of relationships, they are told to submit to their husbands. I want to say several words about this word, and I want, I want to try to navigate what it is saying in the Scripture and what it is not saying in the Scripture. First of all, and we talked about this about a month ago in another sermon series, but submission is not a permit for physical abuse. There's no expectation in Scripture that a woman or anyone else that if they have the opportunity to get away from it, should submit again and again to physical abuse. That is wrong. In the Old Testament, New Testament, we are told that physical violence is wrong. It's sinful. God opposes it. He speaks against it. He tells nations that they are to uh, object, to stand against those who are using physical violence in families, against widows, against orphans, and so forth. They're not to do that. So they should be confronted as evil by the state when that happens. Submission is never a statement about a woman's worth, her intelligence, or her ability, or her participation in decision-making, or that she should never speak up and she should always be silent, or all of these other stereotypical things that we have imposed on the idea of submission. Submission, as it's being taught here, is limited to one man. It says her own husband. It is not a submission to every man in a community, every man in a church, uh, every man who happens to walk down the street. It's not a, a class where one class of people is subservient to another class. It's not describing that. It is a means to unity in a marriage and a home. It is a means to intimacy between two people. One fully, completely yielding herself in love to her husband. The picture is so tender and so beautiful that when Paul describes it in Ephesians, he says this is the way the church is with Jesus Christ. That she, us, she, we yield to Christ as our head. And in the nature of that relationship, there's a mystery, a union, a oneness in Christ that can't be described but can only be experienced. And similarly, submission in this context is, just, is understood in that way. It's a means to unity and intimacy. They don't put two steering wheels in a car for a reason. Even when there's two in a plane, only one is flying at a time, we hope. 
And there's in a business world, we never seem to resent the fact that somebody's in charge and we have to follow their leadership. In every other segment of society, in order for an organism to work well, we recognize that someone has to lead. Others have to yield and, and put some measure of trust in that leadership. But this situation is even more challenging. Because in this day and time, a husband had absolute authority over every person in his household. Not like today. He had the power of life and death over the slaves, as well as his own family, his children, if he was the one in charge. This was not a situation where a wife could just walk away and say, well, I'm just going to leave this behind and go somewhere else. There was nowhere else to go. I think the closest thing I could use to describe uh, the legal situation, not the emotional situation, but the legal situation, would be like under Muslim law. Where can a wife go when a whole society and an entire legal system says you have no rights, you have no uh, freedoms, and so forth? And so he's addressing women, not like women sitting in a pew this morning, but he's talking to women in a very different social situation. And then he goes even further. He talks about husbands who have not obeyed the word. Now, obeying the word is talking about responding to the gospel. And if I hear the gospel, what is obedience to the gospel? It's belief. The way I receive Christ as my Lord and Savior, the good news that my sins could be forgiven and washed away is that I put my trust in Christ. That's obeying the word. He says, even if he doesn't obey the word, even if he's not a Christian, she's called to this. It would have been very easy for a Christian wife to say, well, my husband's not a Christian. I don't need to work at intimacy with him. I don't need to work at unity with him. I don't need to work at being a one with him because he's not a Christian. And she could have used that as an excuse. Paul, uh, Peter doesn't let her do that. Paul doesn't either. Here's the, let's come back to the issue of how my life can influence others for Christ. The key is not what they hear from you. But the key is what they see in you. As we look at this text, it says they can be one without a word, even if they've not obeyed the word. So what's happening is this husband that's being described here is not a Christian. He's heard the gospel. He's rejected it. You know, sometimes people read this and they say, well, you don't have to say anything to win people to Christ. You can just win them to Christ by your life. Well, that's certainly something we're arguing for today, but, but it doesn't mean that you and I never share the gospel. We never tell people about Christ and the cross. These men didn't obey the word, which means they heard it. And they said, I don't want it. So what does she do next? Does she, does she leave little notes for him? Christ died for you. You need to be saved. Does she send him little texts over and over again? Uh, does she repetitively remind him that he is somehow lost and without Christ? Does she keep saying things over and over again? No. That's what, that's what Peter is saying. Don't do that. He says, there's something you have that's even more powerful than this, and that's your relationship to God. He talks about how when they observe the conduct of the wife, and, and what is it that they see? It's a certain way of life. It's marked by, it's your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Not of the husband, but a reverence for God. As a consequence of the inner reality of what God is doing inside of you, how God is changing you, 
There's a shining, there's a, there's a change, there's an attractiveness, there's a difference. As this woman walks before her family in awe of God, pure, that captures the heart and the attention of her husband. Well, that's just a true, as true of you and me in the workplace. That's true as we know, have interactions with the neighbors. That's true all the way around. There's a third way my life can influence others for Christ, and this one's perhaps the most important. It's the power of inner peace in a scary world. The power of inner peace in a scary world. We're going to take what we just said a little bit deeper. deeper. It's more than just seeing my relationship with God. In verse 3, he says, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. And so he talks about three things there, about about, about outward decoration. He talks about, literally, braiding of the hair, the wearing of gold things, the putting on of clothes. Now, this is not a discussion of the expense of these things, where what's being uh, prohibited is wearing expensive jewelry, expensive clothes. No, he's just talking about a focus on external things. Don't be focused on external things. There's some groups of Christians that read this and they say, we're not going to wear jewelry, we're going to do our hair a certain way, and we're going to wear certain kind of clothes. But he's not talking about that. He's saying don't even emphasize your clothes. He's not telling you to stop wearing clothes. Verse 4, rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. So I could put on stuff on my hair, wear jewelry, clothes. He said, or... There's something inside that I can put on. What is the adornment or the decoration that he's talking about? Well, it's internal. It's not external. It's the hidden person of the heart. Secondly, it's eternal, not temporal. He talks about a beauty that's incorruptible. It lasts. Clothes don't last, do they? You have to keep buying them. Uh, Hair doesn't last. You know, all those things don't last, but the hidden person of the heart, there's an incorruptible beauty there. The third thing about this adornment is that it's spiritual, not physical. It's a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle means harmless, approachable, tame, like a wild beast that's brought under control, that this person constantly exhibits that they're harmless. The word quiet describes a kind of peace, a tranquility, a serenity that just exudes from this individual. It's a spirit at rest. It's the idea for someone who's simply sitting and not particularly anxious about anything. I want you to see this picture on the screen. In 1989, a helicopter was flying a photographer out to take some pictures of a lighthouse, and maybe it'll come up. But they took seven pictures of this particular lighthouse, there it is, as a wave was about to engulf the base. Now, if you look very carefully at the center of that base, there's a guy standing there. He's not so big. Uh, Gail and I have a painting of this in our, in, our, in our bedroom. And it's a picture of this huge wave. And this guy, he knows the wave is coming. He's going to step back in the lighthouse. He's going to be okay. So he's not about to be swept away. But he really didn't want to be there. He really didn't want to be there. In fact, when he heard the, the chopper, the photographer, he thought it was a rescue chopper coming to get him away from the lighthouse. He didn't want to be in the lighthouse. And neither would you if you, if you were standing there, would you? And so when he was interviewed later, he said, I heard, heard the wop, wop, wop of the chopper. He thought, 
I'm going to get out of here. He goes out, and the photographer takes these pictures, and it went viral before the Internet. And this picture was copied and reproduced and turned into paintings and all of that. Because it's such a picture of someone who was safe in the midst of great noise and disaster and impending uh, threat. And that's this word. And, uh, you know, sometimes as a pastor, preacher, I feel so inadequate trying to capture what the Scripture is saying. But it's like the picture of someone who is at the bottom of the ocean in the midst of a great hurricane. And above the surface, it's a rip-roaring mess. But underneath the waves, peace. And this wife that's being described here, she's not anxious. Her husband may lose his job. They may not have enough income. She may not be able to get the nice things. She may not be able to have the house that she would like to have. And, and in a temporal and an earthly sense, uh, there are a whole set of values that are always being broadcast at us, men and women, in magazines and media, that you need this, 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 you need this. And she's not part of that. And so when all the world is falling apart because something is different on the inside of this person, her husband notices when Peter's trying to describe the influence that you have over people that don't know Christ, he says one of the most powerful things you have is this peace inside you. And when God sees that peace inside you, that you are at rest in him that way, the Bible says here, the very last phrase of verse 4, it's very precious in the sight of God. It's precious to him when he sees that in you and in me. The illustration that follows is of Sarah. Verses 5 and 6. I'm not going to be able to explain all of it, but it's really interesting because Sarah is held up as an example of a woman who, who obeyed her husband, trusted her husband. She was not afraid, and she continued to walk with God. Well, you know, if you watch and go back and read what happened to Sarah, that's kind of remarkable because he left their hometown not once but twice, left Ur and then Haran. She followed him. They go to Egypt, and he says, Hey, you are such... A good-looking woman. I don't know what Hadi is in Hebrew. But I want you to tell people that you're my sister so that they don't kill me to get you. And so she does. And Pharaoh, he takes an interest in her and brings her in the house. And God brings judgment on Pharaoh. He figures out what's going on, gives the sister back to her husband. And they leave. And then he does it a second time, not just in Genesis 12. He does it in Genesis 20 with a man named Abimelech. Same deal. Hey, when they ask you who you are, tell them you're my sister. So, okay, Abraham. And she trusted God without fear. Even when her husband was laying an egg. And she was not afraid. She was satisfied in him. She knew that no matter what her husband did, that God's got this. And she entrusted herself to him. She believed on God. In uh, chapter 2, verse 23, it says the same thing about Jesus. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Why would that change anything? A human being under the influence of God who's harmless and who's at peace. I believe it catches the attention of others in a crazy, scary world when you and I live that way. It's a life that someone else would want to have. It's a relationship with someone that you'd want to keep. Don't you want to be around people like that? It provokes 
self-reflection, evaluation. When I see someone living that way, and my heart's not that way. And it's a challenge, and nothing is ever said. The result is inner peace. And we are called to cultivate that. And, um, and I'm going to say something here at the end in just a moment to help you take a step into that peace. Number four, the power of demonstrating someone's true worth. That influences people. If you're constantly coming and you're leaving people feeling more valuable than when you first met them. Verse 7, husbands likewise dwell with them, with the wives, with understanding. That means a deep knowledge, and it affects the husband's actions towards his wife. He's caring, considerate towards her. Giving honor to the wife. The word honor means to establish the worth or value of a person or a thing. And when you honor someone, you're establishing their value, their worth. We studied this when we studied Colossians and Romans a couple years ago. We talked about raising the price tag on people. And there are a lot of people sitting here today that don't feel very worthy. You don't feel like you're, you're worth a lot. What we're called to do as brothers and sisters is is to come to you and help you see your worth, that you were so precious to God, so valuable to Him, that He shed the blood of His Son for you. You are precious to God. And we should always be giving honor to one another. And the husband's called to give honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. I keep in my office a collection of lamps, and I have, you may have seen me share this before, they're all reproductions, but I got an oil lamp here, an ancient oil lamp made of clay. Dates back to about the 4th century A.D. You say, well, is that really valuable? Not really. They find these all the time. They find clay-shaped dirt clots all the time in the Middle East. But this is a real one, and uh, they would hold it like this, and they would put oil in there, a little wick. They would light it, and that was their ever-ready lamp, their flashlight. And, and this thing is fragile, as I've had it over the years. It's gotten some fine little cracks in it, and it's getting more and more fragile. When he talks about husbands dwelling with your wives with understandings, uh, giving them honors to a weaker vessel, it's not suggesting that your wife is weak in mind or body. She may be weaker than you, but I know some wives that could take their husband down. So what does it mean for a husband to dwell with his wife with understanding as with a weaker vessel? Well, this is a weak vessel. It is. And if I were to take this thing and, and say, um, Brian, catch. Whew. And I threw it to Brian Morey up in the balcony. You would say, you were not treating that with very much respect, Don. And that thing could have been dropped and broken and if he's not a very good catch, that's what would happen to it. When a husband treats his wife, dwells with her, gives her honors with a weaker vessel, it's not suggesting anything about her. It's suggesting how he approaches her. This is fragile. If I'm treating something with care and respect, I don't jostle it around. I don't poke at it, treat it roughly. Speak to it harshly. Push it around. Be overbearing. Apply pressure. Use sheer force of personality. 
to get what I want. You treat someone with great care. They may not be very fragile, but as a husband approaches his wife, he treats her with that kind of care and concern. The point at the end of the verse is that your prayers may not be hindered. That my relationship with my wife affects my prayer life, affects our prayer life together, and that God cares about my marriage to that extent. The last point is this. Five ways my life can influence others for Christ. The last one is this. The power of blessing others. The power of blessing others. Verse 8. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. And then this moves probably past the church in verse 9. Not returning evil for evil, not reviling for reviling, that's vengeful words, vengeful actions, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. When you encounter evil, you have a choice to make at that moment. You can respond in kind. Someone calls you a name, you call them a name back. But the goal that Peter has is that you and I as Christians would never be infected by the evil in someone else's heart. And so that when they come at you with evil words and evil actions and hurtful statements, whatever the case may be, that what we are called to is to respond with blessing. We don't take life from people. We give life. We offer life. And so with our words and our actions, we desire, we seek to figure out some way with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit how to offer blessing in the face of abuse. How is that possible? How is it possible to live the kind of life that influences others like that? It's only possible through a relationship in your heart with Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about the moment when you were a child or a young adult, when you trusted Jesus and you joined the church and you were baptized. I'm talking about a day-by-day, moment-by-moment relationship with Jesus Christ where he is transforming you on the inside prompting you to do things, convicting you to not do other things. And in the context of that relationship, we've talked, we sang about abiding in Him. In the context of that relationship, we are the branches, He is the vine, we abide in Him, and everything we need to bear fruit is given to us through Jesus Christ. The life of the vine passes through us, the branch, and then bears the fruit at the end. So I need to be in a relationship with him. Jesus said, all these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that that my words will be in you and that your joy may be full, that there would be this overflow of joy, love, and abundance in life. In chapter 1, verse 7, we read this at the very beginning of our study. Referred to Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love, an unexplainable love. Never seen him, but we love him. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible. An unexplainable love, an inexpressible joy, 
And it flows from this relationship with Jesus. Here's the bottom line. My influence on others rises and falls with my personal walk with Jesus. There's a direct relationship between my influence and my relationship. So much of the time we think that we have to push and push and push and push to share Christ, to tell others what's not right in their life, tell others what's wrong with them or whatever the case may be. And we feel pressure. We may never do it, but we feel pressure. We feel like we ought to, and we feel this drivenness. And I want you to know that there is in this relationship with the Lord truly a place of quiet and peace where it's just you and Him. In the context of that quiet place, He gives you something that nothing on earth can give you. Acceptance, peace, forgiveness, joy, love. We're going to stand and sing. Part of our response to what God has said in song and in the word. And if God has spoken to your heart today and you need to talk to one of our pastors, we'll be standing down front. We'll be happy to pray with you. Maybe you came with a burden today and you just need to pray. You can pray there in the pew. You can come kneel at the front, grab a friend, pray together. But there's a lot of different ways we respond. Most important response is if you've never trusted Christ, you can come and talk to me, talk to one of our pastors. We'll share with you how a person comes to know Jesus, how your sins can be forgiven and your life changed. You have the ability, you have the power, you have the privilege, child of God, to change the life of every person you meet. May God have mercy on us, enabling us to do that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for the truth that's here. Father, as we respond to you, as you have spoken to us, would you guide us? you come to us, speak to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.